Good morning, thank you for having me. Um, like Pastor Keith said, my name is Matt. My family and I have been living in Asia for the last four years, uh, planting churches on college campuses. And uh, we work with an organization called Campus Target. Before I say anything, I want to say two things because I, I don't want to forget them. The first is, if I seem vague at times, it's, I'm, I'm trying to be vague at times, just because I know that this is going on the internet. If you're curious or you have questions, or if I'm being too vague, uh, please, I'll be here after service and you can ask me anything you want. And if I know the answer, of course, I'll share it with you. And the second thing I want to say that I don't want to forget is just a heartfelt thank you from my family to St. Paul's. Pastor Keith mentioned four years ago, we were getting ready to go overseas. And I met Pastor Keith and Pastor Ryan and Martha, the Waxrams and other families and individuals. And you guys started supporting us. And that literally put us over the finish line where we were approved, like to, that, that basically our organization said, okay, you're fully funded. You, you, are, you are released to, to purchase those tickets and to pack your bags and to go. And so St. Paul's really played a really special place for us before we went out. And it's worth mentioning, uh, a lot of those were going to be 12-month commitments. And that was 2017, and I think 12 months have passed. And uh, you guys are continuing to stand with us, and so we just want to thank you. It means a lot to us. In case you're wondering what we're up to now, uh, well, first let me say... We, <laughs> Thank you, and we believe it was actually worth it. Like, it was worth leaving my job and selling our house and moving overseas. We believe it was absolutely worth it. Getting to share the gospel with people who had never heard the gospel before, getting to read the Bible with people who literally had never held a Bible in their hands before, getting to see them put their faith in Christ or take the step to be baptized, it was worth it. So thank you. If you are wondering what we're doing now, because we're obviously here in, in Connecticut, um, it's complicated. <laughs> like a lot of overseas workers, we were on the wrong side of the border when COVID happened. COVID sprang up right in the province next to us, and uh, one thing led to another, and we got locked on the outside. And we waited on the doorstep in Asia uh, for three or four or five months, just hoping to get back in. And eventually we said, okay, we can actually use our time better in America. And so we've come home. Our organization has asked us to help with recruiting. And so we're talking to young adults, asking them to consider a season of missions in their lives. Uh, they've asked Grace, my wife. Um, she's not here today. Next week I hope to have a picture and some slides. Um, to, to help out with administration in the local office. Uh, we're, we're doing other things, too. We're working on support raising. We, we lost a lot of support during the pandemic, which is understandable. But if we're ever going to go back, we need to work on that. We're also doing other things where uh, I'm actually taking classes with a lot of Wycliffe people in a linguistics program, hoping that will help me get a better visa in China. We're starting a Mandarin course at a local Bible school near where we live, thinking that exposing Bible school students to a second language like Mandarin and culture will help prepare them uh, before they graduate in case they do go to the field. So we're, we're busy, but uh, God is good and we love what we do. And um, man, I cannot believe four years have passed. This morning I'd like to share something that I've shared elsewhere, but it has been such a meaningful and significant part of my walk with Jesus in the last few years that has to do with discipleship. Am I speaking loud enough? Okay, I was, I was standing back there before and I just wanted to make sure I do. 
It might sound intense at first because it sort of came through a crisis of faith, but please just hear me out this morning because it has become such a source of encouragement and really it's been life-giving and sort of just made things fall into the right places as a disciple. But it started, like I said, with a crisis of faith on the mission field. As Grace and I were landing into our city, <laughs> which I won't name, there's another man that worked in a province in the same uh, country, which I won't name, but this province is in the news a lot. There's a lot of humanitarian issues happening. It's very much, but it's probably one of the, I think, strictest places in the world. It is 1984 to an extreme. I have friends that have come from there and they visit our city and they say, this isn't like a different province. This is like a different planet from where we were. You can walk down the street and you don't have police checkpoints. There's no barbed wire around everything. There's no cameras. Like, I mean, we have cameras in our city, but they, they literally will have cameras in people's houses if they see fit. And so it was a very intense place where they were. This other missionary, uh, he actually had some documents that talked about making disciples of a certain people group. That's like pieces of paper that you don't want to have, okay? Like, and, he, and he realized this. And so he gathered the stuff up. He's like, okay, this place is too crazy. I need to torch all this like, incriminating evidence. And so he gathers this stuff, and he goes and he sets fire to it. And as the fire is dying down, police come. And they say, what you're doing looks horribly suspicious. We, we're asking you, go to your home and wait. We're coming by. We have some questions for you. And so they leave, and he goes home, but he doesn't wait for them. He literally grabs a bag, and he throws stuff in it, and he goes to an airport, and I don't even know where he bought a ticket for, but he leaves the country because he figures it's up. You know, like his gig is up, his cover is blown. And the police come, like they said they would, and they break in. And they find a computer that belonged to one of his coworkers, and it wasn't encrypted. And a lot of lives changed that day because in a second they knew the names of every single missionary in the organization. Didn't matter if you had been there for 15 years or 15 days, 15 minutes. It was over. They knew. And over the next few months, what they decided to do, they didn't pull people in right away. They just sat on it. And they watched these missionaries and they watched what they did and how they did it and who they did it with. And then after months of watching and observing, then all of a sudden random knocks would come. And this is when Grace and I were landing in the country and we didn't speak a second language yet. And so we're out on the streets and we see people that you know, look like us and they speak English and we're meeting friends or we're starting our language classes and we're, we're meeting friends and very early on, all of a sudden we're hearing these stories of coworkers of classmates or friends of friends where people were pulled in and they were questioned and they had 24 to 48 hours to leave the country. And every two weeks this was happening and a lot of our furniture that we, we when we landed, we didn't have any furniture. And then all of a sudden people are leaving the country and they're leaving these apartments as though they still live there. And now we have a bookcase. Like it, it's, some of this is how, like how God provided for us. But it was wild because every two weeks in our city, people were getting kicked out. And it created a stir. And um, to be quite honest with you, I mean, to sum it up, my anxiety went through the roof. I started struggling with what ifs. And I won't get into all the details of where my mind was going. But like, what if there is a price here that I don't want to pay? 
or that's asking a little bit more than what I think I have that I'm actually able to do. It was hard. Does that make sense? Like, okay, because <laughs> I thought I was going crazy on the, other, on the other side of the planet. But I, I do think it makes sense. It was hard. And my friend shared this passage of scripture with me. It's in Luke 14, verses 25 through 35, and I'll read it. It's Luke 14, 25 through 35. And before I get there, I just want to say, as I read it, it's going to sound like a very intense passage of scripture. And it is. But it's so encouraging and life-giving if you hear me out this morning. Okay? So, Luke 14, 25 through 35. Large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and his mother and his wife and his children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation, he's not able to finish. All who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build. He's not able to finish. But what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he's strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other's still far away, he sends a delegation. He asks for terms of peace. So then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all of his own possessions. Therefore, salt is good, but if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It's useless either for the soil or the manure pile. It's thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Am I the only one that if you read that this morning as you're eating your cereal would think, yikes? Right? Like, I know like, there's a lot of intense passages of scripture, but this is one of the most intense words and read passages that, that I come across. It's, I mean, three times we hear a phrase, cannot be my disciple, cannot be my disciple, cannot be my disciple. That's not fun, right? We see Jesus in the red words using the word hate, but he's not talking about hating sin. He's not talking about hating hypocrisy. He's not talking about hating hardness of heart. He uses it in a sentence with people that we know we're called to love. And so it's intense. It's a little weird, I mean, to be honest. And so a lot of times I think we know the general gist and we move on. But I think we'd actually get a lot if we walk through it slowly together. This passage has been so meaningful to me in the last few years. And I really like to talk about it. First, I want to talk about this word hate. Has anyone heard before that this word hate doesn't mean hate and the, this, the way we think of the word hate? Right? It has to do with comparisons. Like even my wife's Bible, the, the dozens of scholars that translated it felt the need to put a note in there as a team, as a translating team, saying this word hate has more to do with comparisons, meaning your love for Jesus should be greater than these other things. Has anyone ever heard that before? All right. I have two. And so it's like, okay, that's what it means and I keep reading or I move on. But, again, let's go a little slower. It's safe to say that this is what it means when it talks about comparison. It's not just the teams of scholars that tell us this and all the commentaries that we can turn to that say this. And they say throughout the Bible it's translated in these, uh, you know, in these passages where it has to do with comparisons. But you think about Jesus and how he taught. 
When he talked about money, he used comparisons. He said, you'll be devoted to one, you'll despise the other. You'll love one, you'll hate the other. He used comparisons. One of the strongest arguments that has to do with comparisons, I think, is in Matthew 10. I think it's around 32, verse 32. Matthew actually pens, I think, the same teaching, but he doesn't use the word hate. He just makes it clear as day it has to do with comparisons. And the way he says it is that Jesus says, if anyone loves you know, their family more than me, they're not worthy of me. And so I, I absolutely believe it doesn't mean hate the way you might hate something that you hate. <laughs> Nothing's coming to my mind, but uh, it has to do with comparisons. But that doesn't mean we just move on. Because Jesus was going out of his way to make a point. Think about this for a second. If Jesus did not use this word hate, and Jesus did not use these close relationships of people that we know are called to love, it would almost like, be meaningless. If he turned to a crowd and he said, if anyone comes to me and I'm not their favorite teacher, he cannot be my disciple. I don't think anyone in the crowd would have blinked. I don't think anyone even in this room, myself included, would have blinked. That has no bite to it. But instead, he doesn't use favorite. He doesn't use teacher, student. He, he uses this word hate. It's so strong. It gets our attention. And he borrows the closest relationships in our lives. Literally from the time we're born and we have parents. To the time we're giving birth to our own kids. And he uses these relationships almost to, like as leverage to make a point. He was going out of his way to make a point, and it's this. When it comes to discipleship, our devotion matter. I know that doesn't sound academic. I know that it might sound overly simplified. But when we become disciples of Jesus, our love for him matters. And what he's saying is our love for him actually has to be so far beyond anything else in this world. And if we don't see Jesus in that way, if he doesn't have the throne of our hearts, if he doesn't have preeminence in our lives, he would actually say something's off in our discipleship. I was talking to Pastor Ryan the other day, and he brought up a good point. He's like, you know, sometimes cults use the same kind of thing. You should bring that up. And he's, yeah, a very good point. I'll never forget the day I met a young man in Hyannis, and I spoke to him, and he was in an offshoot of Christianity. He was in a cult. He had been completely estranged from his family. I'll never forget that. Every time I'm in that area, I, like, I think about him. Sometimes cults estrange us from our families. Is Jesus the same? Or even world religions. My uncle left his wife of like 20, 30 years. They had a good marriage. And he left her to go be a monk in the Catskills. Is Jesus saying the same thing? It's a good question. I, I do not think that Jesus is saying the same thing. This particular passage has to do with our devotion to God. That is true. But that does not mean that we turn a blind eye to the rest of Scripture that commands us to love our family. I mean, kids. But I, I mean, I have kids. They are commanded to honor their parents. I'm commanded to pour out my faith when they rise up and when they lay down. I'm commanded to love my wife as I love my own body and care and nourish her. To lay my life down like Jesus did the church. Like throughout scripture, there are countless passages where we are called and commanded to love our family. So I don't think that Jesus is saying that. And I think to take a step further, he enables us. He doesn't just command us, he enables us 
to love our family. If you guys think about your own life and you ask yourself, if, do I love my, my parents more or my family more now with Jesus than without Jesus? The answer should be with Jesus. He enables us to forgive. He, he enables us to have a sense of humility and work through conflict. He enables us to love people well. And so I don't think he's estranging us from our family here. He's just saying that when it comes down to it, when we talk about the throne of our hearts, he wants preeminence. Does that make sense? He, uh, he goes on and it, it goes, again, I'm going to get through all this. There's a lot of intensity here. He talks about if you're not willing to pick up your cross and follow him, you can't be his disciple. And when I think cross, I think rejection. I think humiliation. I think of all the fun things and enduring difficulties and, you know, Church history, current events, in some places the world would actually talk about persecution and martyrdom. Paul used it figuratively. He said, I've been crucified to the world. The world's been crucified to me. And I think all these ideas of the cross actually add to how we look at this passage and consider discipleship because they all have to do with this idea of, I lay down my will for this life. I'm not living for this world. And instead, God, I pick up your will and I'm, I'm willing to follow you no matter the difficulties. And follow the one that carried a cross from me. And so first he makes a demand on our devotion. Then he makes a demand on our will in a way. And after talking about this cross, he follows up the cross with two word pictures. And it's incredible because, I mean, there's parallels. But for the sake of time, he uses two examples where uh, counting the cost is normal. He talks about a man building a tower, a king going out to battle, and his questions are, what man among you wouldn't, in this situation, count the cost? And the answer to everyone listening was, oh, no one. Like, in that, if I was building a tower, it was going to take all my time, my resources, my energy, it was going to be like on full display. I'm going to count the cost. What king, outnumbered by 10,000 swords, isn't going to count the cost? And the answer is, oh, no, any king, even a proud king who doesn't care about the lives of his men, will still count the cost because he's outnumbered two to one. He cares about himself. And so he uses these two examples where counting the cost is normal and he injects them into a conversation about discipleship because he wants to hand us a memo and says, in case you haven't read the room, when you follow me, I want you to know this is actually one of those situations where you should be counting the cost. I don't count the cost necessarily when I, you know, I'm driving back to Rochester today. If I stop for a soda at a rest stop, it's, I'm not going to count the cost the same way as if I'm looking for a house in Willington. Banks will make sure I count the cost. I have to get pre-approved. They're different. And Jesus is saying, this is one of those times. Following me is a great endeavor. If you come to me, I want you to know this. Count the cost. This is a great endeavor. And he sort of caps it off saying that all of our possessions... <laughs> are his. That no one could be his disciple unless they give away all their possessions. I do not think that this means, I have some things I need to say here, I do not think that this means by the time Pastor Ryan gets back, we have all sold all of our stuff, and we've picked out little corners in the sanctuary, and we start to squat, and he comes back in two weeks, and we have St. Paul's Commune. I do not think that that is what it means at all. And I also am not thinking that we should make rash or impulsive decisions with the blessings that God has entrusted to us as stewards. Should not do anything impulsive. But, 
we do actually have to understand that everything we have comes from him and it's his. Whether we're talking about our retirement or our savings or our house or our toys or our Bitcoin, if you're into Bitcoin, like it's actually all his. And somehow we have to move through theory and understand this is a reality where if he puts his finger on it, he puts his finger on it. Got a cute kid, man. No, oh, it's awesome. Um, he, I'm, I'm almost done. We, uh, at the end of all these, he talks about salt. And I loved the uh, Dry Bones Rising series that you guys just went through. I was listening to it on the way here, and uh, I love the part about salt. And I think a lot of times in salt, it does talk about something that preserves or inspires thirst or uh, gives flavor to the world. It also heals and other things. In this particular passage, it's interesting because Jesus just walked through these keys of discipleship. And I think what he's saying is when he has the throne of our hearts, when we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, when we're not living for this world, but we're embracing his will for our lives and we're willing to carry the cross no matter the, the price. When we're not close-fisted with our resources, but we're open-handed and we understand it's his. And we approach our discipleship saying, this is a great endeavor. This is the greatest endeavor of my life. The saltiness. But when other things have first place, we've all been there. When other relationships, other habits, other hobbies, other sins have the throne of our hearts, when we're more closed-fisted with our resources instead of open-handed, when we treat Jesus casually, which was really easy in a pandemic when you had to stay home in your, your pajamas all day, and when you're not willing to carry a cross and be named a Christian because it's embarrassing or the price is beyond what you want. At that point, I think that our salt is getting compromised. Does that make sense? And so like, I know that that is all pretty intense, but let me say it this way because this is what's helped me. If I were to boil this down to two things, I'd say A, this passage means when Jesus calls us to discipleship, he wants us to be all in. He wants us to hold nothing back. That's the first thing. It's super simple. Probably harder to walk out than say out loud, right? But the second thing has helped me so much. And it's not new. It is not complicated. And it's hiding in plain sight, but it needs to be said out loud. And it's this. If you got nothing else out of this morning, please listen. Jesus believes he's worthy of this stuff. And that is huge. He actually believes he's worthy. If you're familiar with C.S. Lewis, he, had, he coined that phrase, liar, lunatic, Lord. This is one of those times where you can't approach Jesus and say he's just a good teacher. Because a good teacher at UConn would not talk like this. I've had a hundred job interviews. Potential employers have never talked like this, saying they want the throne of my heart and I, I need to carry a cross and all my stuff is theirs. Like, nobody talks like this. It's lunacy. It's psychotic, except if you're Jesus Christ. And he believes he's absolutely worthy of our devotion and our will and our lives. It's huge. What helped me see this, think about this. 
Study this when you get home if you think about it. Um, the context of this passage. They say that really matters, all right? A lot of times in Gospels, uh, it's not in chronological order. They, they put things in different themes to highlight things so that the reader picks up on things. Luke's a little different. I think he says that things are more in like chronological order, right? Either way, it's incredible. If you look at this passage we just read and you look right after it, the next three parables are the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the two lost sons that we call the prodigal son. Incredible stories of God's grace. They, they might not matter to the world, but in Christianity, they, have, they, they speak of the uniqueness of our God that he comes to seek and save the lost. That we have a good God and Savior. It's this incredible story of his, his grace and redemption. And right before the passage we looked at today, he tells a different story. And it's a master throwing a banquet. And he sends out a servant to invite people. And people say, oh, I just got married. I just bought land. I just bought oxen. And they're not coming. And they give these excuses why they can't come. And in that short parable, you actually see that the master is like enraged. He's upset. He's furious because he's not being esteemed as he ought to be esteemed. He's not being valued correctly. And between these two things where we see the grace of God in our salvation as lost sheep, in a master who is not being valued or esteemed as he ought to be, that's where we see Jesus turn to a crowd and say, I am worthy of it all and I'm not going to apologize. I mean, that's, for me, that's powerful. Does that, does that make sense? Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure buried in a field where someone found it. They sold everything they had so they could have the field, so they could have the treasure. And Jesus is turning to the crowd saying, I'm, I'm, I'm the treasure in the field and I'm worthy of it all. When the kingdom of heaven is like a pearl of great price, it is the same thing. There, someone sold everything for the pearl. He's like, I am the pearl of great price. He doesn't apologize. He believes he's worthy of it. And I know in our hearts, we know it's true. We know if there's anyone or anything that's worthy of it all, it's God Almighty, who spoke the universe into being. Who, I mean, you guys, you've, you've heard this before, but like, just the the incredible detail in our DNA, the vastness of the universe. When we rebel, he pursues. He bought us with his life. He hears our prayers. He says, come to me. Cast your anxiety on me. I care for you. I mean, he is such a good God, and we know if there's anyone or anything that's worthy of it all, it's him. And I know that's not new. Sometimes we just need to remind ourselves and each other of that. For me, the way it works is um, if I were to ask you what time you fell asleep last night, you'd probably say, oh, around 10 or 9 or whatever, 11. But if I said, no, no, like what exact moment did you fall asleep? Like, I don't know. Like, no one says, oh, I, I fell asleep at 10.37, and about 26, 27 seconds after that I fell asleep. We don't know when we fall asleep. In the same way that the hymns say, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. 
And Jesus calls us to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And sometimes we just fall asleep or we forget it or our busyness or our wrong priorities or all this stuff shouting at us through all the day. It just gets us. And Jesus wants us to remember he wants the throne. He's worthy of it all. And so um, if you're, I'm not going to assume you're convicted, I'm convicted by this. I'll just say that way. I'm convicted by this passage. I continue to work through things as I'm looking forward to going back to, to Asia. Like this is still something that I, I turn to and I'm like, God, prepare my heart for whatever. Um, but if, if you're here and you're here and like, wow, God wants me to love him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, then I've been more casual than that. I, don't, I can't say he has the throne. Or I'm not really willing to be named a Christian and be embarrassed for my faith. Or I'm more tight-fisted with my resources and I should probably be more open-handed and just surrender it all. Like if any of that makes sense to you, I just want to pray today. There are times in scripture we come and we're comforted and then there are times we come to scripture and we're like, wow, we, Jesus, we need you. Change us, right? This is one of those like, Lord, change us. And if any of that makes sense, I just want to pray to you. Or not pray to you, pray with you. Pastor Ryan, I said pray with you. Don't want him to do any heresy while he's away. <laughs> um, also, if you've never, if I think everyone here is probably a Christian, but just in case, if you've never come to Jesus and you've never said, Jesus, you are worthy of it all, this is the greatest endeavor of your life, and he is worthy of it all. And I'd like to pray with you that as well. Amen. Jesus, I just pray you'd hear the, the prayers that are happening in hearts all around this room and online. God, as people are coming to you and saying, God, be first place in my heart. Help me uh, be not so close-fisted. Help me be willing to endure difficulty. I, I pray you'd hear these prayers. I pray that you'd change our hearts. I pray we'd be more like Jesus. Help us be good disciples. Help us be salty disciples, God, because you're worthy of it all, and we love you. And help us just guard our hearts and guard our first loves. Thank you, Father. And if there's anyone here, Father, that is praying to you right now and, and just <laughs> surrendering their life to you, saying, Jesus, you are the, the pearl of great price, the treasure in the field, Lord, <laughs> the Savior, the one who comes for the sheep, I pray you'd hear their prayer. Father, and you change their heart. You save them, and that, Father, you draw them into a close walk with you for the rest of their days. Thank you, Lord. Thanks for St. Paul's. Bless Pastor Ryan as he's away. We just want to say we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.